Thanks for checking out this week's message. I hope that it's helpful for you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Here at Restore, we are a place where anyone can have a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. So I hope you walk away from this message knowing that you are deeply loved by God and that you can be fully loved by a church community. And if you don't have that, we would love to connect with you here at Restore. You can go to restoreaustin.org to find out more. So my freshman year in college, I took a class called Introduction to Modern Art. Now, a little bit of backstory on that is that I had spent most of high school uh, partying, being a hooligan of various types. And so when I got to college, I felt like, you know, I needed to, I don't know, class it up a little bit, right? Like <laughs> needed to turn over a new leaf, so to speak. Um, so in order to get a little more sophisticated, I thought, I'll enroll in Introduction to Modern Art. Now, that class was uh, complicated in a couple of ways. Um, I don't understand art, I don't think. Um, have you ever seen that uh, on The Office where Andy says, you know, how hard can it be to be an art critic, right? This art is bad, this art is good. That's a little bit how I felt. I know it's not actually like that, but that's how I felt a little bit. But there was one moment in the class where I actually was pretty moved. And that was early on, it was one of the first or second days, and the professor put up this painting on the projector. Do y'all know what that is? Starry Night, who painted it? Van Gogh. Y'all are classy. <laughs> y'all are sophisticated. I remember our professor telling us to just take a minute, you know, and like absorb Van Gogh's beautiful work in silence. And then she asked, What's your takeaway from this painting? People had all different kinds of answers, you know? Some people said it, it illustrates how light pierces through darkness, the power of light. Others said it captures the quiet dignity of a small town and they connected it to their rural upbringings. Some people said it displays the beauty of colors as they kind of splash across a night sky. But do you know what no one said? No one said it shows us how many stars are in the sky. No one said it explains the wind patterns in southern France. No one said it lays out the exact dimensions of the moon. And if anyone had said that, the professor would have been quick to point out that the purpose of Van Gogh's masterpiece is not a lesson in astronomy or meteorology. No matter your level of art expertise, we all look at a painting like this and intuitively understand that Van Gogh is not trying to enumerate the stars or explain the science behind the wind, right? He is attempting to capture the beauty of a starry night, and he does. But it's a painting, not a textbook. It's a painting, it's not a textbook. If we asked Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh to tell us how many stars are in the sky or how big is the moon, we would be asking it questions that it is unable to answer, right? But even more than that, we would be asking it questions that it is not trying to answer. Now, it probably seems ridiculous to treat something like a textbook that so obviously is not a textbook, but this is exactly what we have done with the early chapters of Genesis in the Bible. We have asked it questions like, how old is the earth? How long did it take God to create the world? Where is the Garden of Eden located? Is evolution real? When did the dinosaurs live? Now, I'm not saying these questions don't matter. I think they do. I think they're worth talking about. 
But here's what I desperately want us to understand. The creation story in Genesis is not only unable to answer these questions, it makes no attempt to answer these questions. Even if we completely disregard things like fossil record, evolution, or carbon dating, all we have to do is look at scripture itself to see that it makes no attempt to be literal or scientific because Genesis is not a textbook. For example, the first three creation days all conclude with there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day, the third day. And then look at how the fourth day begins, Genesis 1:14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. So the light that served to mark days is not created until day four. But days one through three say that there was evening and there was morning after each of them. But there is no evening or morning without the sun, moon, and stars, right? That's because it's not trying to be scientific. Another example is found in the order of creation described in Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2. Let's look first at Genesis 1, starting in verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, that's Genesis 1. Here's Genesis 2, starting in verse 5. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Did anybody notice the incongruencies there? In Genesis 2, God creates man before any shrub or plant appears. But in Genesis 1, the plants are created on day 3. Humanity isn't created until day 6, right? These are just two of the many examples of the creation story making no attempts to be scientific or literal in the traditional sense. Now, I'm far from the first person to point these things out. We actually have recorded evidence of Jewish scholars doing the same thing as far back as 200 years before the birth of Jesus. The creation story makes no claim to be a scientific or literal retelling of the origin of the earth. Genesis 1 and 2 makes no attempts to answer most of the questions that we have become obsessed with asking it. Old Testament scholar Pete Enns says it like this, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of Genesis to expect it to answer questions generated by a modern worldview, such as whether the days were literal or figurative, or whether the days of creation can be lined up with modern science, or whether the flood was local or universal. The question that Genesis is prepared to answer is whether Yahweh, the God of Israel, is worthy of worship. Now, I firmly believe that not only are we asking Genesis 1 the wrong questions, but we have so plucked it out of its context, ignored its genre, and applied our 21st century Western expectations to it that we have completely missed the point of what is happening in this, y'all, beautiful, incredible passage of Scripture. I'm not saying it's not great. I'm saying it's greater than we've ever thought it is. To borrow a line from another pastor, in the beginning, we misunderstood but guess what? 
It does not have to be this way. Because here's the thing that I don't want us to miss. Genesis is so much more than a scientific explanation of how the world was created or a commentary on the age of the earth. It is so much better than a textbook. The origin stories in Genesis are portraits of God's majesty, an explanation of God's purpose for the world and beautiful pictures of God's great love for all humanity. Today we began the first series inside of our year of Bible stories for grown-ups that we kicked off last Sunday, and it's called Origin Stories. And in this series, we're going to look at six origin stories which have sustained, encouraged, and challenged the people of God for thousands of years. Creation, that's what we're doing today. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, Job, and the Tower of Babel. Stories that a lot of us grew up with. Stories that, depending on your age, maybe you saw on a felt board once or twice. (laughs) My hope for us, though, inside of this series and really throughout this entire year is that we would learn how to interpret Scripture in ways that lead to Christ-likeness and healthy community and flourishing for absolutely everyone. Because every story we're going to look at this year, including the creation story today, has been interpreted in ways that actually lead us away from Christ-likeness, healthy community, and flourishing instead of toward it. For example... Literalist interpretations that are only concerned with using the creation story to attempt to scientifically explain the origin of the earth have actually done incredible damage to individuals and to the church at large. Let me give you an example. I'll tell you about my friend, Derek. I met Derek about seven years ago. He had started dating a young woman who was coming to restore. And when we first met, he was like, hey, listen, I'm here because of her. I'm not into this, okay? Like, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe it. I just need you to know. I was like, 100%, man. You're always welcome. Like, no pressure. But if you ever want to hang out, talk about it. I would love to hear, like, why that's your first reaction (laughs) to meeting me, you know? He was like, okay, all right, all right. So we go to coffee, and immediately he's got all the questions about the age of the earth and evolution. Turns out he's got a a pretty intense biological scientific background and higher education and other things, right? He's like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And I would try to gently explain like, for sure, yeah, not everybody believes that though, you know? Like that's not a requirement of Christians that like you have to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old or you have to believe in six literal days or whatever. Like that's not a requirement. You don't have to be anti-evolution. That's not a requirement. Christianity. And he was confused, right? Like deeply baffled by that. Because here's the thing. He had heard his entire life, Christians believe the earth is 6,000 years old. Christians believe it's six literal days. Christians believe that evolution is made up. Christians believe that God buried dinosaur bones in the earth to test our faith. Okay? Not maybe, maybe not that last one, although I heard that growing up. I don't know if you did. <laughs> he had heard all of these things. Christians believe, Christians believe, Christians believe. And then when he came to a point where he did not believe that, what do you think he did? He self-selected out of Christianity. He thought, I've been told by everyone that I know inside of Christianity that this is what Christians believe. I no longer believe that, so thus I am not a Christian anymore. Derek's story is unique because it's his, but it is not uncommon. 
I'm looking at your faces and I know some of you have the exact same story when it comes to these passages. We've had conversations. I've heard about your story and how this has hurt you. And even though Derek, after a few coffees, I realized that he really loved Jesus and wanted to follow him, he didn't believe those other things. And so he thought, there's no room for me inside of Christianity. Someone is told that a Christian has to believe X, Y, and Z. And then at some point, maybe they no longer believe X, Y, and Z about the creation story. And then they leave. And I'm telling you, that's our fault. That's not their fault. That is what they have been told by people that they trust. This text, texts like it, have so been turned and weaponized to say you have to understand it this way or you're outside of some imaginary boundaries of Christianity that people have gotten really, really hurt. Maybe walked away from faith altogether or maybe just really deeply wounded, still hanging on to faith, still trying to go to church, still trying to crack open the Bible when you can, but really wounded by some of this stuff. That is why what we're doing, not just today, but throughout this year, matters so much. Now that we have a better understanding of the why behind how we're engaging with these stories, I want to dive into our first one, the creation story. So as we always do, I want to start with context. Now, it may surprise you, but the context of the creation story is not the beginning of the world. The context of creation story is slavery. The context of the creation story is slavery. Let me explain what I mean. Regardless of if you believe that Genesis was written and recorded primarily by Israelites, including Moses, around the time of captivity in Egypt, or later around the time of captivity in Babylon, much of the context is the same. Both of these situations were times of deep trauma and crisis for the Hebrew people. Their freedom, their families, even the way they practiced their faith had been stripped away from them. They were literally in captivity, enslaved to another group of people. And no doubt, they were questioning things. They were doubting everything they'd ever been told about God's character and God's plan for them as a people. We do the same things, right, in times of crisis. We ask questions like, why did God allow this to happen? Why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Where is God when we're suffering? Where is God in all of this? This is what was happening with the Hebrew people. And many of them also worried that their defeats at the hands of the Egyptians and the Babylonians meant that their God, Yahweh, was inferior to their enslavers' gods. You see, this was how divine hierarchy was determined in the ancient world. The gods whose nations won the wars were the best gods. They were the most powerful gods. So in order to answer these questions and reassure people of God's goodness and power, Hebrew leaders and scribes went to work compiling the origin stories of their people. They needed to return to the foundational truths about who God is, who they are, and why God created all of us in the first place. But here's something else really important. These stories weren't written out of nothing. They were informed by centuries of oral tradition, stories that had been passed down, and by the origin stories of neighboring nations. 
especially those whom the Hebrew people found themselves in captivity to. Now that last part, I know it might be new information for you, but the origin stories of Genesis were written in response many times to the origin stories of Egypt and Babylon and Canaan and other peoples of the time. So I wanna show you what I mean. One of the most popular creation stories is from ancient Babylon, and it's called the Enuma Elish. Has anybody ever heard of the Enuma Elish? Hey, not bad, not bad. Many of the original manuscripts were found in 1849 in Iraq. They date back to a full 1,000 years before the writing of Genesis. Now, I wanna read you a few excerpts from the Enuma Elish this morning so you can see just how influential it was on the writing of our creation story. So this is chapter one, verse one. We're gonna skip around a little bit. It said, when the heavens above did not exist and the earth beneath had not come into being, there was the God called Apsu, the firstborn, their begetter, and the God Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together before meadowland had coalesced and reed bed was to be found. When not one of the gods had been formed or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed, the gods were created within them. In pure Apsu was Marduk born, Marduk, you are the most honored among the great gods. Tiamat gathered together her creation and organized her battle against the other gods, her offspring. And after the warrior Marduk had, been bound, had bound and slain his enemies, I'm not gonna actually read this part because it's super violent, uh, but Marduk kills his mom, Tiamat, who had just finished killing her husband, Apsu, and then Marduk creates the world out of her body. So just remember that. Marduk fashioned the heavenly stations for the great gods and set up constellations, the pattern of the stars. He appointed the year, marked off divisions, and set up three stars for each of the 12 months. He made the crescent moon appear and entrusted night to it and designated it the jewel of the night to mark out the days. He created mankind from his blood on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. That is the Enuma Elish. You can hear some similarities in there, but you can also hear some pretty intense contrasts, right? But the Enuma Elish, it captures the dominant view of creation in the ancient world. That is that there are a bunch of violent gods who battle against each other for power and supremacy. They often behave erratically and humanity's only job is to do their work and keep them happy. That was the dominant view of how divinities worked and how creation happened in the ancient world. So these Hebrew scribes used Genesis 1 to tell a very different creation story, familiar enough to be recognized by the culture, but directly in opposition, actually, in a few key areas, thus highlighting the vital differences between Yahweh and these other gods. So I'm actually gonna read our creation story from Genesis 1, and I want you to see if you can recognize some of the differences, okay? It's not gonna be on the screen, because I just wanna kind of read it over you. I want you to listen, see what you think. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth and across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move across the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So when you read the Enuma Elish and Genesis 1 back to back, you can see that there are both similarities and differences. Let me point out a couple for us. In verses 1 and 2 of Genesis, it says, Yes, the heavens and earth were made out of nothing, just like it says in the Enuma Elish, but not by Apsu or Tiamat or Marduk. They were made by Yahweh. In verses three through 13, it said, yes, the water and the land and the vegetation were made, but not by victorious gods after a divine bloody battle. They were made because Yahweh simply spoke them into existence. That's how big and powerful our God is. In verse 14, it says, yes, the sun, moon, and stars govern the day and the night, but they are not gods themselves. They were created by Yahweh. And in verse 26, it says, yes, humanity was created, but not to relieve the gods of their toil, but to join with Yahweh, to be his representatives on the earth, made in his image and his likeness. These close parallels and stark contrasts were put there on purpose by Hebrew authors because our creation story is meant to demonstrate just how different Yahweh is from the other gods of the time. That was the purpose. Genesis makes some truly audacious claims. Not that the earth is 6,000 years old or that evolution is a lie, these claims are far more audacious than that. 
our creation story claims that we have a God who both created entire galaxies and single cell organisms by just speaking them into existence. A God who carefully formed everything from the smallest of insects to the largest of animals with care and intentionality and a plan. A God who made plants and trees and every other kind of vegetation. But most of all, Genesis makes the audacious claim that our God did all of that, created this entire world so that he could have a place to commune with me and you. That's why God did it. At a time in their history when they felt abandoned by God, overwhelmed by their circumstances, plagued with doubts and questions about their faith, this creation story was written to give them comfort and hope and peace. At a time when every other God was all about themselves and only used humans for their own selfish pleasure, our God was all about humanity. And instead of using us, he partnered with us to create this goodness-filled world. I think Rachel Held Evans says it perfectly when she says, contrary to what many of us are told, Israel's origin stories weren't designed to answer scientific 21st century questions about the beginning of the universe or the biological evolution of human beings, but rather were meant to answer then pressing ancient questions about the nature of God and God's relationship to creation. As much as we may wish them to be, our present squabbles over science, politics, and public school textbooks were not on the minds of those Jewish scribes seeking to assure an oppressed and scattered people that they were still beloved by God. And I believe, y'all, that the purpose of the creation story remains the same today. We must interpret it in ways that provide comfort about God's majesty not unnecessary conflicts with modern science. We should read it in ways that emphasize God's care for humanity and all of creation, not in ways that try to explain the literal origin of the earth. When we try to make this story about something that it's not, bad things happen. People get ostracized and excluded and hurt. But when we lean into this story for what it actually is, which is a beautiful picture of God's character and God's great love for all of humanity, it becomes a foundational truth that we can have faith in, a story of hope that we can cling to when things get difficult. Now, I don't know your story. I don't know your background of faith. I don't know what you're carrying right now. I don't know whether you're all in on Christianity or you're just like kicking the tires a little bit. But I do know that no matter what you're going through or where you are on this journey of faith, this creation story is meant to meet you where you are and give you hope and help that you need in any given moment. That you can trust that you were made carefully and intentionally by a God who loves you so much. It's been doing just that for thousands of years. We're gonna sing one more song together. It's a beautiful song that is actually informed by our origin stories. It's called So Will I. My encouragement to you is to take the next few minutes and just meditate on who God is and who God says that you are. 
It doesn't matter if you stand and you sing or you kneel and you pray or you sit and you just think however you wanna do it. I want you to just soak in this for a second. So I'm gonna pray and if you wanna stand, you can. We're gonna sing, so will I. God, you are so good. You are so worthy of praise, worthy of beautiful stories like these, which tell us just how good you are. So I pray that as we continue to read stories like these, as we soak in them over these next few minutes, God, that you would impress upon our hearts just how deep your love is for us, for all of humanity, for all of your creation. That whatever means you used is less important than why you did it. Because you love us, because you care for us. Not because you wanted to dump all your drudgery upon us, but because you wanted a loving relationship with all of humanity. Help us find comfort in that this morning, no matter where we are or what we're walking through. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.